Hello, hello. Before we launch into our Halloween discussion of The Exorcist, I have a couple of updates. First off, we recorded this episode a couple of months ago before the death of director William Friedkin, so that is why we are referring to him in the present tense, although I think a lot of our commentary is in line with the many tributes that were published earlier this year. Secondly, uh, I just want to let you know what's coming up next on the schedule. On our main feed, our next episode will be a review of Passages, co-hosted by the effervescent Claire Biddles. So Passages is one of the most acclaimed movies of the year. It's a queer romantic drama starring Franz Rogowski, Ben Wishaw and Adele Exarchopoulos, now available to stream on Mubi. Uh, we loved it, and uh, I'm sure many overinvested listeners will love it too. And on Patreon, Morgan and I have recorded a review of Emerald Fennell's extremely annoying but widely hyped new movie, Saltburn. Uh, that should be up pretty soon, and we are also going to do an episode about Our Flag Means Death Season 2, which I have been covering for TV Guide. We are big fans of the show, so if you have not heard our review of Season 1, you can go find that at episode 255. And on that note, as some of you may already know, I was laid off from my job at The Daily Dot last month, so I am now available for freelance work in film and TV criticism, pop culture journalism, etc. So if you would like to hire me for that, or for podcast or audio scripting work, please get in touch at my email address, which is g.baker.whitelaw at gmail.com. Okay, on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my guest host, Stefan Allen. Hello. So this week we are discussing the classic 1973 horror movie, The Exorcist, adapted by a director, William Friedkin, from the novel by William Peter Blatty. Ellen Burstein stars as a single mother whose 12-year-old daughter begins to exhibit strange behaviour, baffling doctors until one finally suggests a different solution – Exorcism. Renowned at the time for its scare factor, this movie spawned an entire subgenre of exorcism-based horror cinema. So there is going to be so much to discuss with this film. It is completely fascinating. It had this huge cultural impact. And also at the time, obviously, there were all these stories about people throwing up and passing out from fear. And there was a behind-the-scenes curse with extensive injuries and a body count. So much to talk about, but also it is a great work of cinema and kind of a fascinating release for this period in Hollywood history. Um, but yeah, Stefan, I think this was the first time you watched it. It is. So I'd seen The Omen, which is, you know, one of the many, many demon exorcism possession films that, you know, that kind of came in the shadow of the success yeah, of this 1976. Film. But this is so much richer than I expected. What I hadn't expected was just how rich and elaborate it was and how sophisticated, just so much going on in this film. I had exactly the same reaction when I saw it for the first time and even re-watching it for a second time last week, I, I just had like basically the same reaction because it's one of those movies that's so iconic and has like a few images that are just completely baked into pop culture. So like the thing with the spinning head and like the point where the possessed girl vomits green pea soup and that sort of thing. But it's so much more than those iconic images, which is obviously often the case, but I feel like this is like the most extreme example of that because you sit down and watch the film and I watched it with a pal who hadn't seen it before. And it's like, it starts with like an archeological dig in Iraq. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, what? what? That dig sequence is surprisingly long, even. Yeah. I've been, you know, watching sort of behind the scenes stuff. It's about 10 minutes of the film. Yeah. And it's really moody. There's very little dialogue in that sequence. It really is just an, a haunted man wandering around for 10 minutes, you know, just really laden with meaning, but so hard to arrive at the meaning of what we're watching. Because obviously there's so many films that kind of begin with, you know, someone finding the mummy's tomb or whatever. And I was like, God, I feel like Stargate the movie was like drawing from this, even though it's like a classic film cliche. But then for yeah. the rest of the film, like the artifact is actually far less relevant to the story than you think it's going to be, despite there being this extensive thing at the beginning where someone finds this demonic artifact. 
Yeah. The thing that that dig is doing is it's establishing loads and loads of images that will recur. In fact, it's not even clear what the plot is. Some people interpret it as the dig is where the demon is released, but other people think the demon was already released and the dig is merely the demon sending new messages to its old enemy, the uh, priest. You know, people can't even agree on what little plot actually happens in this sequence. But the thing we get is just absolutely loads of bits of imagery. We see statues and artifacts, and yeah, it just it just really establishes visually what we should be concerned with. Yeah. And also it centres on Max von Sydow, which is such an incredible piece of casting. Like we will talk about the casting in general later on, but it's just fascinating because like he is playing a character who is 30 years older than his actual self in this movie. He's wearing old age makeup throughout the film, purely because the director was like, I must have Max von Sydow playing this elderly priest. (laughs) (laughs) And for like film people... He is really great casting because his kind of most iconic role is probably in The Seventh Seal, which is a religious kind of fantasy film with horror elements by Ingmar Bergman, which, if you've not seen it, is absolutely incredible. But also to modern viewers, when you watch it now, you're like, here's elderly Max von Sydow, and then you see him in Star Wars... 40 years later, they did good makeup on this guy. Like, it pretty much was what he looks like. (laughs) Yeah. He feels old as well. I mean, the the performance. Yeah. I think that's such a hard thing to do. You know, there's big, long sequences for him. The, you know, and like so much of it is in the movement. He's, He's amazing. Just tremendous performance. But yeah, we should do a bit of an intro to the people in charge of this film who are deliciously intriguing characters, the two Mm. Williams. So um, obviously this is based on a novel that was enormously successful at the time, uh, The Exorcist book by William Peter Blatty, who was a very prolific novelist and screenwriter. This was obviously one of his early successes, but he came from a working class Catholic background. Um, He was very Catholic throughout his life. And the book is based on allegedly real possessions and exorcisms. And the main difference he made when adapting his own work into the screenplay was to kind of make it more obvious that the main character, the girl named Regan, is actually possessed rather than it being this sort of ambiguous thing where you're like, oh, it it could be a rational thing. It could be an illness, mental illness. Which in real life, of course, most people who get exorcised is people who are you know, being given religious treatment for mental illness. But he also based the main priest character, Father Karras, on himself, which is kind of intriguing. So William Peter Blatty came from a Lebanese background, like his parents were Lebanese Catholic immigrants. And Father Karras is a child of Greek immigrants. And like Blatty, he was very athletic and lived in poverty because we see him kind of hanging out with his mother in the movie. But um, William Peter Blatty, big personality from what I can judge, um, he spent a period in his youth impersonating a Saudi Arabian prince. And the way he became a full-time writer is winning $10,000 on a quiz show so he could give up his day job. Here's the thing I find really interesting. He writes the book, Blatty, and it's not a success initially, but he goes on talk shows and that's when it becomes huge is because on a talk show, he's talking about, you know, quite openly about speculating on whether you know, the devil exists. And so so people are like, what? I've got to read this book. So that's kind of where the success of it comes. You know, it doesn't succeed on its own right as a curio, but like it's, you know, the, the personality of Blatty is a huge part of its success. And also I feel really indicative of how great talk shows were in this period because talk shows now are extremely shallow and stupid and I see kind of American people talk about this quite a lot especially older people because like there was this period you know up until the early 90s where you would have very intellectual conversations on late night talk shows and I mean obviously you'd also have entertainment fluff but you'd have people whose job was being like an extremely witty smart person who went on talk shows like that is part of the start of Leonard Cohen's career, he started out as a poet and would go on talk shows and talk about smart stuff and then became known as a musician, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of emerging from that period where you would have people and it, like, because there's a far narrower range of mainstream pop culture, it kind of allows this sort of thing to take off. And also, like, the book clearly was, like, very extreme. There's a lot of shock factor. Like, there were some things that were, like, toned down for the movie and the movie itself is really extreme now, even though obviously some of the special effects aren't as believable as you might think in modern films. It's very extreme. There were points where I had to look away. Yeah. But yeah, it is 
a great choice to adapt into a film during this period in cinema specifically because the 1970s were where American film was really taking off in terms of adult content and experimentation in independent film for mainstream viewers because the Hayes Code had basically like popped its clogs in the 1960s yeah. and filmmakers like Friedkin were allowed to run wild. Yeah, and this is, you know, the other thing it's intersecting with is this isn't the only book about possession that is kind of becoming exciting in the minds of American mm-hmm. audiences at the time. You know, the, the, we have things like the Amityville Horror and, um, oh, Michelle Remembers, that's one, isn't it? You know, there's there's all these is books. Is Michelle Remembers the Satanic Panic book? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So there's quite a lot of books. Um, and, and I don't know much about the Exorcist book, actually. Um, I know more about Michelle Remembers. Yeah, I've not read the, the Exorcist book. But I, but I kind of gather that all of them are in this sort of tradition of... Stories that are kind of rooted in truth, but maybe changed or twisted. And often you sort of get the impression that it's, you know, as most exorcisms are, these are the stories of sometimes troubled women or troubled children that are not being taken seriously. And so um, it must be a possession, it must be a demon. And then those books become... It sort of starts an industry where people read those books and go, oh, okay, being possessed by a demon is a thing, is it? And now even fewer women and children will be believed when they report mental illness or puberty. So William Friedkin, the director, at this point already quite an acclaimed figure. Something I find interesting kind of when looking into the background of both of these people is it's another thing that's kind of very indicative of the period is you have this screenwriter and director, both of whom are second generation working class immigrants. So Friedkin is from Chicago. His parents were Ukrainian Jewish immigrants who fled Ukraine, moved to America in like the early 20th century. And He went on to become a filmmaker, obviously, and was a lifelong film buff. So completely obsessed with, you know, Hitchcock and also watched a lot of European films and then became part of this generation of filmmakers in the early 1970s who were known as New Hollywood. His kind of breakout film that was like an enormous hit, although he did make some before this, was The French Connection in 1971, which is this uh, neo-noir crime movie which is known for having this very realistic aesthetic like almost documentary style it's also known for kind of these car chases that are very authentic and it's very intense and masculine i personally don't actually find the french connection very interesting although it is this hugely influential movie but then off the back of that he ended up making the exorcist in 1973 One of his earlier films was actually The Boys in the Band, which is kind of this groundbreaking film with a gay cast based on the play, which I've not seen. Um, But later on, he also made Sorcerer, which I can highly recommend in 1977, which is this extremely intense thriller about people trying to transport stuff in a truck across a forest. I don't want to see any more about what it is about because that would be spoilers, but it is the most stressful movie you will see in your life. And it got completely overshadowed by Star Wars. So he is kind of this pivotal figure because his star as a director collapsed at the point where Star Wars and that kind of blockbuster media basically took over American cinema in 1977. And it's kind of seen as this breaking point where serious, quote unquote, adult films stopped being a dominant force in the late 70s. So he has this really interesting place in American film history, even though he's not a household name like Spielberg or something like that, you know, more popular with kind of film buffs at this point, even though he is a huge mainstream director. But yeah, we'll be talking a bit more later about his intense personality and filming style, because it seems like he is a monster tyrant who made people's lives hell in this film. (laughs) Yeah. So something incredibly funny, you know, I've consumed lots of behind the scenes stuff on this film. And... You'll watch one thing and it'll talk, for instance, about the voice actor who performs the voice of the demon. And it says, oh, you know, in order to get the voice just right, you know, she would chain smoke in advance. She would drink whiskey and stuff. And then you'll watch another source that goes, yeah, because the director made her do that. (laughs) So there's this thing where about half the behind the scenes stuff will talk about this interesting stuff, taking away the element of kind of monstrous torture that seemed to that was inflicted on most of 
Yeah, yeah it's this. like they tied the voice actress to a chair so it sounded realistic when she was struggling and it's like well who tied her to the chair <laughs> i mean there's a whole documentary which i haven't seen which is specifically friedkin's perspective because um there's also a making of documentary that came out in the 90s but a few years ago a movie came out which is just him kind of being interviewed about the process of making this film and uh, apparently they just kind of gently skate on past all the injuries caused to cast members, you know, and mm. just talk about his experiences. And it's all very sort of adulatory, which I find amusing. But it is also the only way you can get someone like that to agree to be interviewed. Uh, so, course, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we, we should start talking about the plot in a minute. But I just want to introduce the cast very quickly because it's an intriguing cast. Although I kind of did mention earlier that the 1970s were a point where like serious indie cinema was really kicking off. This was a Warner Brothers movie. It was a big studio film, although not enormously high budget, 12 million, which is high-ish for the time, but not a blockbuster. And um, unexpectedly, it does not star a bunch of famous people. Uh, it seems like Friedkin pushed for a lot of control over casting and picked a really interesting bunch. So the main character is... A middle-aged mother who is a professional, very successful working actress who is filming a project in Washington, D.C., who is played by the character actor Ellen Burstein, who is in many, many, many films and TV shows and is still working and will appear in an Exorcist sequel this year. Oh, (laughs) wow. At the age of Of 90. (laughs) And then her daughter is played by Linda Blair. It was obviously a very difficult role to cast because it is very much an adult film and they had to find someone who was or looked approximately like they were 12 years old and could make this film without like being scarred for life and you know do it in a somewhat responsible way i say somewhat because clearly this film was not filmed in a responsible way but linda blair after this went on to have quite a successful career and also look at her personal life section on wikipedia she had a very exciting time in the 70s dated many a rock star But then along with Max von Sydow playing the priest, we also have the main priest who is played by Jason Miller, who is this very interesting character who, as I said, was kind of partially based on the original novelist. Miller at this point, although he was kind of an actor, was primarily known as a stage playwright, um, a very acclaimed playwright who won a Tony Award the same year this movie came out. So just really interesting casting. And then further down the cast list, you had him casting real priests in some of the supporting roles, particularly father william o'malley who plays kind of one of the primary priests so yeah that's that's our cast very interesting yeah i think this is something people talk about in modern day with with finding like a load of unknown actors all cast at once people get very excited because there is something really nice about watching a story you know losing yourself in a film and if the actors are unfamiliar to you so much of the magic of a film i think is connecting with bizarre charismatic people and the way they they interpret the characters they're given i think linda blair is the only person in this film i'd seen in something else probably and obviously you know <laughs> she's she's doing something very different to anything i've seen her in before so it is a really great cast and it and it feels so perfectly chosen ellen burstein is amazing Apparently they considered Audrey Hepburn for that role. I don't. I, I only have one source on that, so I don't know what considered means there. Even though at this point she was still relatively near the start of her career, I do think it's interesting that like Ellen Bernstein was kind of the most quote-unquote famous person in that yeah. like core trio of characters because like she is playing a character who's famous, so it kind of works. Yes. And as always, one of the great things about casting people who aren't necessarily household names is there's this feeling of authenticity, which is kind of the philosophy behind this film because it wants to make a supernatural horror movie that isn't filmed in a supernatural or dreamlike way like it has dream sequences but they're more to do with kind of the psychoanalysis of the characters rather than being like oh here's this kind of surreal atmosphere it's very much rooted in reality which kind of overlaps with the fact that a lot of this movie is medical horror yes yeah it's shocking watching it if you know it from pop culture just how late into the film we actually get even hear the word exorcism but certainly actually getting to the exorcism you know it's really really late into the film most of this film is trying to find medical solutions and it's it's horrible absolutely horrible so you're you're going from you know, the incredibly traumatic, demonic imagery and just the awful things that are happening to Reagan and the awful things that Reagan is doing as she's possessed by this demon. And then we're going into, you know, the clinical world of medicine, which is 
horrible in almost the opposite way, where it's it feels so mechanical and yeah. I mean, maybe this is irresponsible as well. Like I can imagine people seeing this film and fearing medicine, <laughs> which I don't know if that's a, a helpful thing. I mean, to give a bit of a plot introduction for people who haven't seen the film or need to jog their memory, as we said, obviously it starts off with this prologue in Iraq where a priest and some archaeologists find this artifact, which is a representation of the demon Pazuzu. I say demon because that's how this is described in the film. Bit of Gavia Baker White lore, lore for you. In university, I did an ancient history and archaeology degree and my my dissertation was on Pazuzu. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't know before, that. Long before I'd ever seen The Exorcist or had any fictional context for this. But like Pazuzu is not a demon. <laughs> <laughs> so like the little statue thing is a great prop. I have absolutely no problem with them kind of co-opting some old entity from Mesopotamian history. But like from what I recall, which is not a great deal because this was well over a decade ago, <laughs> he's more of like a protective figure. So like you have all of these entities which are kind of loosely described as demons that are supernatural and are kind of existing around the landscape. But this isn't a kind of thing where it's like, oh, we're afraid of Pazuzu possessing us and then you have to exorcise him, which is like in this framed in a very Catholic way. He's a personification of the wind and has a rivalry with another demon that is like a threat to women and mothers. So actually in the context of this narrative, you'd be better off calling Pazuzu to protect the main characters from Lamashtu, who would be trying to attack women and mothers. <laughs> I don't recall any of the other stuff. But yeah, he's not a demon and obviously not a Catholic. Although one of the key messages of this film is that if you have any kind of supernatural distress, you need to call the Catholic Church, who are a great <laughs> power that will save you and your family. <laughs> but yeah, after this introduction, we segue into a completely unrelated storyline that dominates the rest of the film, which is in Washington, D.C., we have this actress, Chris McNeil, who's filming a project there and lives in a very nice house with her daughter, Regan, who is about 12. And is portrayed like very interesting here because she absolutely seems like a child, but it is narratively a story about the onset of puberty. And I feel like that works really well because a lot of movies that are horror or dramas about puberty kind of scale the character's age up more. And part of the horror of this experience is that like puberty does happen to immature children. <laughs> like she is a kid, she's like, I want a horse, you know? And it's like, yeah, that's a 12 year old. <laughs> but yeah, she starts like exhibiting all this very strange behavior. Like she has an imaginary friend that she speaks to with an Ouija board and she starts getting really erratic. Like there's a point where the mother hosts a party for some of her filming buddies and then her daughter comes downstairs and just pees on the floor in front of them and predicts one of their deaths. And then the film starts speeding very quickly through, as Stefan said, this process of trying to get a medical diagnosis, which I found very interesting to watch both times because it feels like this quite authentic depiction of like, when anyone tries to get a diagnosis for an unusual illness, but especially women, where like initially there's a lot of kind of doubt and condescension from the medical professionals. And obviously like the main character wants to trust their advice. And there's this clashing advice between like, oh, can we find a medical solution to this versus should you go to a psychiatrist? And at first they basically diagnose her with like the 1973 equivalent of ADHD and give her Ritalin, which of course makes no difference because she's possessed by a demon. <laughs> and then th it gets to the point where she's having this conference with about 15 different doctors and she's on her like last rope. And one of them is like, have you ever heard of exorcism? And I just found that such an indicative comment of the influence of this movie, because obviously there had been depictions of demonic possessions and that sort of thing in previous horror films. You know, 1968, Rosemary's Baby, iconic feminist horror movie that's kind of about being like implanted with the devil's baby, although it's not quite in the same zone. But like this movie just put exorcism on the map and made it so that like all of these genre tropes were completely in place and are still being replicated identically in movies 40 years later. So she gets in touch with the Catholic Church and specifically this priest, Damien Karras, who has been seeded in through the film in a separate plot line. So we've got to know him as a co-protagonist. He's this very mournful figure who we don't even think of him as an exorcist at the start of the film. He's just this priest that we know is going to obviously show up later. 
And when she gets in touch with him, he goes through this very rigorous process of kind of interviewing Reagan, and he's very sceptical, which is another note that kind of comes into a lot of other exorcism narratives, like a TV show that I've been watching with a couple of friends recently that I love is called Evil. And it is by the creators of The Good Wife and The Good Fight, The Kings. And it's absolutely tremendous. But it is this crime procedural about like a group of exorcists that work for the Catholic Church. And they've got this X-Files situation where you've got like a priest, a skeptic and a psychiatrist who like analyze people to see if they're really possessed or not, which is (laughs) such a funny product of this subgenre. But eventually he kind of is forced to realize that Reagan is definitely possessed because like, you know, she's got abnormal strength, you know, stuff is floating around her room. She's vomiting stuff. There's like scars appearing on her body, this sort of thing. And then we kind of get to the final act with the actual exorcism where we they bring in Max von Sydow's character again and he kind of performs an exorcism in the final act. But from an experiential point of view, I find it interesting that like, although that's like a really shocking scene, the part that was far, far more disturbing to me was the medical stuff because there is this prolonged sequence where they put Reagan through these medical tests and they do this thing which I hadn't really heard of before called called an angiography where they like have to put this needle and pipe into her carotid artery and then to scan her brain with dye and stuff but like it's really intense and I already don't like seeing needles go into people's bodies in movies or real life and this is the part that apparently had the most extreme audience reactions with people like passing out and vomiting and stuff yeah that's it it's interesting that once you get into analysis of the exorcist loads of it focuses on this medical stuff but until I saw the film, I didn't know that that was in it. So, you know, if you, if you go into actual film criticism of it, yeah, you know, loads of the focus is there. But none of that is what's made it into pop culture. Like, if The Simpsons does an episode that is a parody of The Exorcist, they're probably not going to include, you know, this very sort of invasive kind of hospital-based stuff. It's really intense. And it just feels, again, it, it that, that thing of um, Friedkin having his stuff be very realistic and very rooted in the real world. The machines we're seeing, you know, we've got these incredibly loud, frightening machines. And I think that only gets more frightening as the years go by, because seeing this old, early 70s equipment, oh, you know? Like, like you know that thing they say about, isn't it amazing that when people first landed on the moon... You know, it was with 1960s technology. You know, it was with analog machines rather than modern. Computing. I find everything to do with the moon landing so terrifying. Like it's like they yeah. were in there in like a fucking tinfoil box. <laughs> <laughs> That's what this really reminds me of. Is just even if she wasn't possessed, whatever's up with this girl, ah, oh, she deserves better than 1970s medicine. <laughs> I want to talk about what this is like as an experience, because it's hard not to talk about the set pieces when talking about this film, but from one moment to the next, it's a real character story. And until we get to the exorcism, I think when we get to the exorcism, then that sort of, that is what the film is now, is we're just going to follow this action horror set piece. But until then, we are really there with predominantly the Chris McNeil story, so she's the actor, because the medical stuff is horrifying, but it's horrifying because we are on Chris McNeil's side. You know, we are seeing things through her point of view. She is just doing everything she can to try and help her lovely daughter. Her relationship with her daughter, you know, is really sweet. Like, we see them hugging in bed or, like, making plans for Reagan's birthday. You know, so much of it is is the human experience of following these people. Same with Jason Miller's character, the the priest. You know, we are seeing him coming home and, like, he's looking after his elderly, unwell mother. We are there. You know, it's interesting. You know, we, we don't see him get the news that she dies, but we know that that's kind of where it's going. It's interesting what this film chooses not to show as well. It's really... Like, loads of gaps are left for you to fill in. Not because it's ambiguous, although there are bits of ambiguity in this film, but because it, the film just trusts you to make the connection. Yeah. It feels extremely 1970s New Hollywood era storytelling. Because like you said, it it assumes that the audience are intelligent adults, which yeah. is definitely not the case for the majority of mainstream films now. 
Yeah, because the film it reminds me of. Obviously, I'm obsessed with this film, so of course it would is is Midsummer. <laughs> of course, <laughs> but, but you know, because Midsummer also has these like leaps of logic where it doesn't show you precisely how you get from A to B, and and you fill in the blanks. But the reason Midsummer is like that is because you know the director filmed an extra half a movie on top of the incredibly long movie that he put out. So actually, all of that connecting tissue is in there. Is is you know you can see a director's cut that is much more direct. Whereas this film, no, the, you know there there isn't a scene that explains how the crucifix gets from downstairs to upstairs. There isn't a scene that shows Reagan breaking into a church to apply clay to deface uh, a statue of the Virgin Mary. You know, you really are just trusted to make the connection. Yeah, I mean, Friedkin was obsessed with the movie Psycho and was also a big fan of Le Diabolique, which is a 1955 French horror thriller that we did a podcast on, Morgan and I, so you can listen to an episode on that. We rewatched Psycho many times, and I feel like this is a very clear successor to Psycho, kind of in a similar way to Rosemary's Baby, because these films are very much intentionally horror genre films that are aiming for shock value and to disturb the audience while also taking themselves very seriously as a psychological drama in this period when filmmakers in America were very interested in doing these kind of pinpoint realistic characterization pieces. And in this, the main characters are highly specific. You know, a lot of horror movies, and I don't mean this as a criticism because I love horror, as you all know, (laughs) Um, but a lot of horror movies, the main characters are quite reactive. So like the character needs to be extremely emotionally authentic and relatable and intense, but they're relatively thinly drawn in terms of their wider life because that's not relevant to the experience of the horror narrative. But in this, because the whole thing is rooted in the idea of this chaotic, terrifying entity just interrupting your life at random. There is this long sequence, as you said, where we get to know the mother and daughter and we get to know the priest. And like with Chris McNeil's life, she is surrounded by all of these actors and stuff. There's this great party scene, which I feel is a really effective tool in the story because we see all these people she's interacting with who are, you know, well-to-do, middle-aged arts people. And like, she is a single mother, but she's clearly very wealthy. She has two servants. And even the design of her house is really interesting because like, after a few scenes, you figure out that it's not their house. They must be kind of, I guess, borrowing it from someone because she's only kind of temporarily in this city. Or perhaps she has like another home that she lives in more, something like that, because, you know, her daughter's kind of talking about like being somewhere else. It's explicitly stated. So she has sold her home in order to move out here for the shoot because she ah, is, right. because a house is being built for her when she returns. Okay. So that's why they can't go back is because the house they're going to be returning to hasn't been built yet. And it's this like lovely, but not in a lot of films, I feel like a very rich person, their house is like extremely beautiful. And in this house, this house is like totally lived in, but you can still tell that it's owned by someone wealthy. And also she has these like two servants waiting on her. Yeah. And it adds to how realistic it feels. I think that she's not an everyman character. She's a really specific person with a specific life Yeah, that I think builds to the believability of it. And so is Father Karras, which is really smart because whenever you have a priest character, like their priestness kind of subsumes any sense of identity, you know? And a lot of the time they're obviously not the point of view character, like in most films of this type where you have to call in a priest. In other films that came later, a lot of the time they are not really a particularly interesting character. They're quite trope-centric. And in this, you know, you see the relationship he has with his mother, you see his mental state and like his personal failings and you know you understand that like he could have been a boxer and he's very athletic and is always running and stuff like that and he also has this close friendship with this guy around the same age as him father dyer his bestie and is a cool priest unlike him <laughs> yes it's interesting that we learn of his interest in is it psychotherapy or, or counseling this yeah he's a psychiatrist he's he's a doctor but the church put him through the training. So, you know, he is a priest first and foremost, but it allows him to be, what, like a counsellor to other priests. Yeah, again, a very strange and specific character. And I like that we see him, you know, the loss of his mother makes him question his faith a little bit, but also he's not enjoying the job as it is. He's finding that quite intense. 
I think often in films like this, the priest is this, like, concrete authority figure who just comes in and says, this is how it is. And I like that the same ambiguity that exists elsewhere also exists uh, for Father Karras. He has doubt. Yeah. It's very interesting to kind of look at the way this has been kind of interpreted and criticised, because obviously there is a huge amount to analyse in this film, all of which we definitely don't have time for. But with this, it's this interesting situation where it can simultaneously have this very sympathetic feminist interpretation and also has got some very valid criticism because, you know, you have this fantastically well-drawn female lead and this very understandable depiction of like, the horror of puberty and women being overlooked by the medical profession and just the confusion that these two characters are facing, the mother and daughter. And then also that kind of overlaps with the idea of like feminine body horror, which is kind of, I guess, politically neutral. Like you can do that in a lot of ways. And I don't feel like this movie is exploitative, even though it's really extreme and (laughs) lots of people saw it just because they knew there was going to be a crucifix masturbation scene, which is like very shock value. But at the same time, there is this, as I said, very valid criticism of the final act of the film, the mother largely disappears from the narrative and you have these patriarchal authorities come in and save the daughter. So you have the Catholic Church literally saving her. So even though it's this really well-drawn character, it does kind of function as Catholic propaganda because they really do solve the problem and then that becomes reinforced by the next few decades of Christian horror movies, which always just like default to Catholicism. While at the same time, obviously, a lot of Catholics complained about the movie because it was so extreme and they said it was sacrilegious, which, you know, fair enough. But it is something I often think about because I watch such a high volume of horror movies and I love demonic possession movies, which is that even films which weren't really interested in Catholicism or made by Catholics or are talking about Catholicism on a thematic level at all will default to using Catholic style exorcisms. And like you see this in supernatural TV stuff, like you know, Buffy and things, which don't have any interest in that side of religion. And like, in other ways are, narratively speaking, kind of defaulting to generic American Protestantism. And it's like, exorcism isn't really a Protestant thing. I feel like cinema is really kind of missing out on this. So for instance, I'm always on the lookout for Jewish horror movies, because I feel like they're really underrepresented in cinema. And last year, I saw a very fun horror film called Attachment, which is partially kind of a lesbian (laughs) rom-com and partially a story about a really controlling Jewish mother. And that kind of revolves around a Jewish exorcism narrative partially. But like the exorcism aspects are surprisingly similar to what we see in Catholic influenced possession movies. And you see like the exorcist influences everything. Like even if you go to Asian cinema that is completely divorced from Catholic and Christian kind of mythos, there's still a lot of aesthetic overlap. So it kind of really highlights just how much this movie was just like a bombshell on cinema in general. Yeah, it's it's hugely influential. And the other thing is, we talk about some of this stuff being Catholic because that's that's where it's from in this film. But a lot of it, you know, in people's minds isn't Catholic imagery. It's exorcist imagery. Yes. Like, I like the bit where he says, we haven't done exorcisms in hundreds of years. Like, you know, it's an incredibly old fashioned, almost superstitious thing to do. And it's like, not anymore, baby. (laughs) It's like, literally this year, you've got a movie called The Pope's Exorcist, where it's like Russell Crowe going around. I assume hitting people over the head with a giant crucifix. I've not seen it. I keep resisting seeing it because I know it's had horrible reviews. And it's like, Gavia, don't pay money to see this. Wait until you can watch it for free. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's it. This film will change that. It's going to date itself by setting in motion a wave of exorcisms throughout the lands. It's really interesting. And it's interesting why it's appealing as well, right? Like, I can see why people want to see this film. And, you know, masturbating with a crucifix, that is a famous scene. I think it is less famous just how horrible it is, just how much blood is in that scene. Like, the the horrible sound of the stabbing and the piercing flesh. It's really, really vile. And, it, and there is something that speaks to, even if you're not especially religious, the interaction between sex and gore and you know the defiling of the innocents you know like uh, the defiling of children with religious imagery is incredibly disturbing which actually i think you know so much of talking around 
you know, the scandals of the Catholic Church and, you know, the cover-ups of uh, the abuse of children actually, like, draws people in in the same way. You know, I realise that sounds really gross, because obviously we're talking about the abuse of loads of real children. And obviously, you know, people care about that, and they genuinely care about that. But I do also think there's a type of person who's drawn to it in a ghoulish way. You know, how many jokes are there in stand-up comedy about um, Catholic priests? And, you know, it's almost a shorthand for this sort of... Yeah, like, it genuinely is, like, used as a punchline so much. Yeah. If you've got a joke that opens with, there's this Catholic priest, you're sort of expecting child abuse to be a theme of that joke by the end. So even though this film is sort of the opposite, the Catholic priests are your final line of defence, it's the same fascination. The language spoken by the demon is so intense, you know, really, really strong stuff that that is still shocking now. There's the scene where the Virgin Mary statue, we see that she's defiled, and specifically she is given clay breasts and a clay dick. <laughs> um, and, you know, like, the last time we saw clay was Reagan making, you know, a lovely little little model out of clay. Oh, that's such a good point. I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? <laughs> it's, yeah. Um... There's so many points in here where, like, it intentionally doesn't draw a line between things in a way that is very different than, from the way narratives unfold in a lot of more modern films where, you know, you don't see the through line between whether the Pazuzu statue has caused the possession. You don't see the direct through line between the character who dies, which kickstarts the crime investigation subplot, which we have both forgotten to mention. But um, there is like at the same time running concurrently to the development of Reagan's possession, a man who's working with the mother, Chris, dies under mysterious circumstances. Like he falls down the stairs next to their house and his head is turned all the way around. So like we know that it's an exorcism related death. We know that it's a possession-related death, and also she had already predicted his death. But we don't see how the death happens, although we can infer it. Yeah. And there is this cop character, played by Lee J. Cobb, who is a great classic Hollywood character actor and appears in The Exorcist 3. But he is this very interesting figure because he's, he's kind of avuncular, but you can tell that he is very intelligent and he is going to, you know, interview... Chris McNeil, because he can tell there's some kind of connection between her and the murder, but like she's not really framed as a suspect, but it just adds this extra layer of like worry and paranoia to her situation because like, you know, this guy may have died by falling out of her daughter's bedroom window or something. And by this point, she's seen that her daughter can exhibit super strength. So like she can guess that her daughter's probably killed someone, but like, was it really her daughter? And there's this ambiguity to like whether you can even persuade anyone that she's actually possessed or not. So there's this whole other factor going on in the background. Yeah. It's really interesting having a police officer who's kind of investigating it normally. Those scenes feel very, this could be Columbo, very rooted in in genre. And he's so likable. And also just a really eccentric character as well. I think it continues this film's thing where every character is a character. No one is a trope here. He's really into like classic movies and scams free tickets in his capacity as a cop to go and see nice PG-rated classic movies at the cinema. (laughs) Once he's finished interviewing Chris McNeil about this incredibly traumatic stuff, he then tries to get an autograph out of her, (laughs) ostensibly for his daughter. And when she asks for his daughter's name, he's like, okay, I lied. It's for me. (laughs) (laughs) Again, you can interpret that. You know, maybe that's him trying to kind of, you know, maybe this is a strategy to make himself more likable. But it seems really consistent that this is a guy who just really loves movies. Here's another thing. I want to hear your thoughts on this because I don't know what I make of it yet. What do you make of Reagan's absent father in this film? That's a very good question. I mean, I feel like the fact that she's identified as a single mother, that Chris is identified as a single mother, is like so intentional and interesting from a 1970s perspective because this is coming five years after Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. And... You know, obviously the release of these two films is overlapping very closely with the very prominent women's rights movement in America. So it's kind of this like positive portrayal of single motherhood and showing that she is obviously very independent and not shamed in the slightest for not having a man in the house. But then narratively speaking, of course, she is then rescued by the men of the Catholic Church. 
Yeah, I don't know. Like, what do you think? I agree with that. But there are two scenes that make me think, is there more going on under the surface here? One of which is the scene of Reagan's birthday, where we hear Chris on, you know, Reagan's mother on the phone, you know, to Reagan's father. In fact, she can't even get through to Reagan's father. He yeah. hasn't phoned her on a birthday. He's not picking up. And she's just furious. And she's, you know, screaming down this phone. And we see that Reagan is hearing this. So it's interesting, given that there's not a huge room for ambiguity here. She is possessed by a demon. She has supernatural abilities. And yet it's clearly important that part of the trauma in this child's life is that her father isn't around and that her mother is furious at her father. Yeah, and like at one point when she visits the psychiatrist, he's kind of suggesting reasons why Reagan might be depressed or behaving erratically. And it's like, well, you know, she's at that age. And also like, what if she misses her father? And like, Chris is obviously very defensive about the idea that her daughter might be mentally ill because of their divorce. And it's like, in fairness to her... Regan seems really happy and completely fine prior to the possession. Yeah, yeah, she does. The risk with a film like this is that there's so much going on in it, and there are times where it wants you to connect dots that can be quite obscure sometimes. The risk is that you overanalyze, that you make connections that aren't there. So tell me if you think this is a reach. But her father's name is Howard, and... I think we know that when Reagan is using the Ouija board and is connecting with an imaginary friend, I think we think that's the demon, right? Well, it's like Mr. Mr. Howdy. Yeah, Captain Howdy. And Captain Howdy and Howard are very... You know what I mean? Like, there's, there's yeah. a similarity in those names that might just be coincidence. That might be too much of a reach. But that's what I thought while watching it was... You know, there's a connection between the name of her imaginary friend and her missing father. We have two, you know, invisible presences here. Well, that is a very good point. So, uh, yeah, and I, I don't know if I'm reaching too far, but like this, the risk is that there's so much in it that I'm not sure if it wants me to. I mean, it's a dots. great movie to write a PhD on. Mm, yeah. I did watch one YouTube video analysing. It's It analyses only the 10-minute Iraq sequence. Brilliant, absolutely fascinating video. But I definitely think it falls into the trap sometimes of just highlighting stuff that isn't there. <laughs> and, you know, in the video's defence, you know, the narrator will say, this is probably a reach, but... <laughs> I mean, it's definitely a reach, and this probably doesn't belong in the video, but it's made me paranoid about... It's that thing of, you know, there's something in the corner of your eye, have you noticed it? I mean, that's something we haven't talked about even, is is that we also get little flashes of, like, demonic imagery, that blink-and-you'll-miss-it type stuff. You know, that feels really influential, you know, that's the kind of thing that you see in stuff like Fight Club, or The Haunting of Hill House, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of kind of discourse about the use of potential subliminal messaging in terms of these little flashes, which... As always, subliminal only counts if you don't notice it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although who's to say maybe there is also subliminal messaging in this film. But yeah, you know, they have this effect where there's some moments where Reagan's face has another face overlaid over it. So like there's the face of Pazuzu, which is done by this older adult actress, Eileen Dietz, who also shot several parts which were like too unsuitable for a child actor to do. So like some of the masturbation stuff and things that are really extreme, there was a lot of back and forth over how much involvement she had in it because she claimed that she was on screen a lot more than the director claimed she was on screen. And then there had to be litigation where Warner Brothers was like, she's got 28 seconds of screen time sort of thing, you know. But it's sort of like when you hear about like legal troubles and the Writers Guild where they have to figure out, you know, who did what draft. But um, yeah, you've also obviously got like the voice of the demon has two voices, one of whom was this actress who did all the stuff, as you said, with uh, drinking whiskey and smoking cigarettes and being tied to a chair, Mercedes McCambridge. But yeah, some like interesting mix of like extremely effective special effects and makeup, which is effective in context, but like doesn't look very good to modern eyes. I think we should in a minute segue into talking about the curse to kind of wrap up. Yes. But I also want to shout out just a couple of technical elements that we haven't really talked about yet. One of which is the cinematography, which is, of course, excellent. The cinematographer on this was Owen Roisman, who had five Oscar nominations. He shot The French Connection with Friedkin, which is one of these great examples of like a director-cinematographer partnership where the style of these two films is very different. You know, they're two years apart. They have a very distinct creative vision. As I said, The French Connection has this very 
realistic documentary style and also very fast paced car chases sort of stuff. And then he moves on to The Exorcist, which similarly is like shot in a very realistic style, but has a lot of elements that are geared toward, you know, supernatural shock value. And of course, there's this extremely iconic sequence when Max von Sydow's Exorcist character arrives outside the house, which has all this kind of beautiful lighting in the background. And for the rest of the movie, Friedkin was very invested in the idea of having not natural light in the sense of, you know, only using sun and moonlight, but light that feels like it is generated within the environment rather than a lot of, you know, stylized stuff that you would see in horror movies of the 1960s. Because in the 1960s, you saw a lot of gothic horror, also still a lot of horror movies that were being filmed in black and white, like Psycho, which came out in 1960. So fantastic cinematography from Owen Roisman, who went on to shoot films like Three Days of the Condor and The Addams Family in 1991. So a very varied career. Um, but also the music, because the music has this combination of there is like an orchestral score, but the most iconic music is Tubular Bells, yes. <laughs> which became a chart hit. And it's really interesting to watch kind of this period of movies in the 1970s where you had these very hard hitting horror movies and thrillers that would have quite noticeable electronic music in the background. Like I would say the most obvious would be Tangerine Dream. There is a soundtrack by Tangerine Dream on Friedkin's Sorcerer and also in the crime thriller Thief, which Morgan and I did a podcast on a few months ago. And it's like, I love this period. It's very fun. And it's also part of the reason why Star Wars has this sweeping orchestral score, because that is a contrast with the recent trend for yeah. using this more experimental music. And by and that made Star Wars just feel so distinctive because they were like, this is an opera, this is a symphony. We've got like the French horn section coming in. And then Freakin's like, no, I want to have like this fucking robot bells playing in the background mm. of a priest showing up to someone's house. Yeah. And it's really creepy music, you know. That, yeah. Because it's funny how little it's used in the film. I think it's only in it three times and one is over the credits. But it's so, you know, you hear that music. That is The Exorcist. Yeah. It's one of those things like um, John Carpenter music, because John Carpenter did a lot of his own music. And like the Halloween music is just like so kind of reiterated through a pop culture. Yeah. I mean, that film came out in, I think, late 70s, like 1978 or something. But yeah, those two technical elements, great details. Shall we wrap this up by talking a bit about the curse? Yes. So um, <laughs> the behind the scenes elements of this film, I wish I'd had time to watch the documentaries about this movie, but um. First off, this movie was meant to shoot in about 100 days and it took 200, which is never a good sign. Part of this was because Friedkin loved to reshoot everything and was an obsessive detail maniac who was like always firing crew members and making people reshoot really specific stuff because he was a perfectionist. But also, there was a massive fire that like burned down the main house set for Regan and Chris's house, so they had to rebuild that. Two family members of lead actors died. Um, it's like Max von Sydow's brother and I think Linda Blair's grandmother. Okay, I'm going to say, and I don't want to make light of death, but grandmothers die sometimes. They do die sometimes. And this is, in fact, a point that William Peter Blatty made. Ironically, given that Blatty was the Catholic who was writing this book originally that was like, oh, it's all based on real exorcisms. But like after making this movie, Friedkin was like, after all I've seen in this film, I definitely believe in demonic possession. We were plagued by strange and sinister things in the beginning, which is precisely the sort of thing you want you say, A, when you know that your film's promotional tour is very reliant on the idea of depicting this as an authentic, terrifying experience. And B, when you'd like a paranormal explanation for why you've broken two of your cast members' spines. Yes, yes, yes. Because yes. Linda Blair and Ellen Bernstein both suffered very serious lifelong disabling injuries. I mean, obviously they continued to have long careers, but like they had long-term pain and like Ellen Bernstein's like spine issues were partially caused by the fact that she couldn't get surgery and treatment in time because she had to complete finishing this film on crutches. And Linda Blair was a child when she filmed this and ended up with scoliosis and also a kind of lifelong fear or dislike of the cold because during the exorcism sequence, which obviously took up a lot of filming, even though it is mostly in this one room in the final act, there's this fantastic effect where you see people's breath in the air. So you can tell that there is this tangible presence in the room that it's suddenly become cold because the demonic presence is there, which is a far more cinematic thing than smells because in the book I think there's a lot more to do with like vomit and diarrhea and stuff, yeah. which is like the disgusting body horror elements, which they kind of toned down a bit in the film. But it meant that he had to turn this room into a refrigerator. Yeah. 
and then you have a child actor like chained to the bed for like however long was legally allowed to film with children in the 1970s freezing it's another reason why the project stretched so long is because he had this refrigerated set but then you bring in the equipment to film it and that heats up the set so you can't actually film for that long there before it needs to be cooled down again i think it took two months to film the exorcism scene and it was done chronologically just beat for beat what's in the script so yeah the the idea of uh oh god it was it was so cursed you know so many people were injured or, or, or hurt and it and it took so long all of this is exactly what you would expect from someone <laughs> who's you know firing blanks in order to scare the actors to get a genuine reaction the vomiting scene is very famous but you know the actor believed he was going to be hit in the chest by that vomit and then he's hit in the face which yeah that gets a, a realistic reaction but you know if you're not expecting to be vomited in the face things can go wrong if you operate in that way Yeah, I mean, one of the funniest details is him slapping the real-life priest in the face on set, and then people be like, you can't slap a priest, and it's like, this is the thin end of the wedge, mate. (laughs) It is definitely very characterful that, like, he is primarily known for making these very intense films that have, they provoke this visceral experience, and it's like, yeah, because... He was doing that in real life, and it would be preferable if he hadn't, but um, there we go. Well, sometimes, if you want to make a great movie, you got to slap a priest. Once again, I can only reiterate, highly recommend watching Sorcerer. What a great film about driving. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Is it in your top five films about driving? It's hard to say because there's the entire Fast and Furious franchise and Mad Max Fury Road, but it, it is incredible if you want to just feel horrible for two hours. But yeah, I mean, this movie had this huge impact when it reached audiences because... Of course, all this behind-the-scenes stuff was great to talk about afterwards as part of the promotion and, like, post-release lore. But even at the time, you know, the word of mouth on this movie was people crying and fainting, like, widespread fainting in theatres. Like, I think this is the movie that is the most renowned for having real physical impacts, kind of like a mass hysteria situation. People throwing up, you know, probably fake or jokey anecdotes about like cinemas giving out barf bags. Yes. (laughs) Um, And like ambulances being called to movies and then like religious backlash and like people who were religious having religious crises because they were so disturbed by seeing this depiction of a demon. And it's like, I kind of love it. And that is something that only happens when it's like this watershed moment of never having seen a film this extreme before, you know? Yeah, I think that's true. I think also people who like horror like the mythology of it, you know? like yes, It reminds I mean, me of the grown-up version of that idea that everyone who grew up watching Doctor Who in the 60s and 70s would watch it from behind the sofa because it was so frightening. And then you watch 60s and 70s Doctor Who and you go, I mean, it's fine, isn't it? You, like, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, whipping yourself into a frenzy, you know, is a great part of the horror experience. And it was a huge commercial hit. So of course they had to make sequels. The second Exorcist movie I have not seen Mm. and is apparently terrible and Blatty refused to be involved with. But I did actually watch, by coincidence, The Exorcist 3 quite recently, Mm. which came out in 1990 and is directed by William Peter Blatty, who had directed at least one other movie before. So it wasn't like he was kind of just sauntering in. He had a long experience as a screenwriter too. A lot of people regard this film quite well. And I was sort of surprised because like it is, to me, absolutely nowhere near as good as The Exorcist. Mm. But it is kind of interesting because like the first half hour is kind of a buddy movie between... Father Dyer, who here has been recast, so he's no longer played by a real priest, he's played by the character actor Ed Flanders. And the other lead is the cop. Yeah. So it's like, they're like going to the movies together, they're having this cute little friendship, and then it becomes a serial killer thriller. Oh! Basically, it's like, there is this serial killer who is very obviously um, the Zodiac killer, who is named the Gemini killer. (laughs) Oh, lovely. And the story is kind of, this investigation where it's deeply confusing because you're getting these new murders which appear to be by the Gemini killer but he's in an institution so how can it be him and like the the story is that actually it turns out that it's it's the demon Mm. and they have this situation where Father Karras who dies at the end of The Exorcist returns in this kind of dual form where they bring back Jason Miller the original Damien Karras actor and he and 
the iconic Brad Dourif, who I feel is best known as, as Wormtongue from Lord of the Rings now, but also as Chucky from the Child's Play franchise and many other roles. He is also in the same body. So they kind of like, depending on whether he's possessed by the demon or not, you have this dual role of them both being there, which is like so cool to watch, yeah. like these two performances. But like, it's not a good movie. It's a very kind of just like stupid, exploitative zero killer film, in my opinion. Mm. By the end of it, you know, I was watching with one of my flatmates and he was just like, I'm not watching this anymore. It's boring. And then as soon as he left the room, they had a really cool, like, demonic possession, like, lady scuttling over the ceiling scene. Mm. But yeah, I always do appreciate it, even if the film's not good, when a franchise really swings for the fences and does something that's basically another genre. Yeah, yeah, that is really <laughs> Which fun. this did. Have you seen the uh, the director's cut of this film? Yes. Okay. It ends with genuinely like a lead into the Exodus 3, basically, yeah. because it ends with this little friendship scene between the lieutenant cop guy and Father Dyer shaking hands and being like, let's go to the movies. And then that, like, you could literally just watch The Exodus 3 and be like, oh, how intentional. Yeah, yeah. So I think the theatrical cut is the way to watch this film, if anyone listens to this yeah, and Yeah, like, I, the one I was re-watching this time was the the extended cut and I kind of realised partway through and was like oh I wish I'd picked the theatrical but you know they're not, they're not drastically different it's like 10 minutes longer yeah. uh, but I think everything that is additional in the director's cut is stuff that was right to leave out one of the bits that's cut for the theatrical is um, Reagan like coming down the stairs isn't it like a spider sort of she, she's coming down on all fours but upside down you know that really creepy sort of famous sequence it's a shame to lose that in a way I think but also it is right that we lose it because that so overshadows what we're actually getting at the time, which is it's the director's death. It's, uh, you know, Chris McNeil has just found out that the director's been killed. So I think the director's cut is interesting in that it increases your appreciation of the film that we got in the first place. Nothing's a waste of time. So if you've seen The Exorcist a thousand times but haven't seen the director's cut, I do think it's worth it. So I guess to round out, how much of this did you close your eyes for or hide from the screen? Oh, um, I made myself not do that, but I did find the medical stuff really hard to watch. I fully did not watch a lot of the medical stuff. Yeah. I freely admit. <laughs> As someone who watches a lot of horror movies, I have full control over when I'm not watching mm. the horror movies I'm watching. And I'd also forgotten, like, I mean, possibly the extended cut just has more of the medical stuff, but like, I genuinely forgotten that they fully like insert a needle into someone's carotid artery and then like stick a tube in and stuff and i was just like i am not watching this (laughs) i did find myself with my hands over my face you know that thing where you oh when did i put those there but it was usually like the social horror rather than the physical horror so it was oh my god i can't believe that 12 year old girl said that in front of all those guests or whatever (laughs) yeah we should have mentioned earlier like i can't believe we didn't really talk about that as much but there is like a lot of the really like shocking but kind of almost funny shocking stuff in this is like when she starts to curse and like say really obscene stuff yeah. to adults so she's like just all like really sexually explicit like disgusting abusive language and it's it's really fun like it's mm. it's nasty and fun yeah yeah that's where it feels most like it's connecting to puberty my daughter would not say things like that well, Chris McNeil, you're right, she wouldn't. This is, She is possessed by a demon. But do you know what? But in general, she might. <laughs> she might, yeah. <laughs> it is very darkly comic sometimes, this film. Yeah. Because the demon, I've worked out what it is. It's The demon has a sense of humour. Well, yeah, because the demon, the demon is just having a fucking great time because yeah. it's like the demon has the stakes are just like so low because it's like it doesn't think it's going to get exercised. It just wants to destroy this girl and her family and torment everyone. Yeah. It's like having a great time shocking people who are very easy to be shocked. Yeah. Yeah. Strong characterization from Pazuzu. Yeah. It's also I'm really curious as to what power the demon has because like it'll use these like telepathic powers to slam drawers or it will, you know, say things about your life you can't possibly know you know it knows that the priest's mother is dead and yet whenever called upon to you know like the priest is like okay if you know my mother what's her maiden name and the demon just doesn't answer and it's unclear whether it's because the demon refuses to answer any questions or follow the instructions of a person or whether it's because oh it can't actually do that that all of this is just yeah, a conjuring I mean, trick I think it's both intentionally ambiguous that they don't have exposition on this also I feel like they have to narratively limit the demon's powers because like it has to feel like there's some way to kind of contain this and it's not this totally godlike presence. Yeah. But also, I feel like there may be ways to logic your way through it because part of the situation with the demon is that like it's an entity that's possessing her and is trying to torment people, obviously. Yeah. 
but also it has this kind of phone line into hell. Mm. And the thing with the like, oh, your mother sucks cocks in hell kind of thing. The reason why it can't give that information is because it doesn't actually have contact with his mother because she's not in hell. Yeah. Yeah. But it can know other information because Regan might have been sneaking out at night or the demon itself has like been in other people's bodies or been in other places in the physical world and can learn information like that. Yeah. So like it could have learned about the priest's mother dying because it's been hanging out in this neighborhood where it's already killed someone and like defaced a church. Yeah. And also we have this thing where because of the way it's filmed in quite a realist way, including the dream sequences, some stuff that we see might be dream sequences. Did Reagan quote the homeless man that had asked the priest for money earlier in the film? Or is that just what he heard? You know, was she just speaking in tongues and he just, you know, it's also ambiguous just how much of this stuff is uh, dream logic. So I don't know if it is possible to defend a purely secular reading of what happens in this film, but... um... (laughs) (laughs) I think absolutely not. She's definitely possessed. (laughs) It's not one of those ones where it's like, oh, well, they won't, they. (laughs) (laughs) She's just a troubled girl who killed a director. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I think um, on that note... We should bid farewell to The Exorcist. Yes. So as always, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, overinvestedpod Twitter, overinvestedpodcast, Tumblr, and Instagram. You can find me at hellotaylor on Tumblr and Letterboxd. Stefan, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Stalin with a U, uh, S-T-A-L-U-N. And in Wales, presumably, as a stand-up comedian. Oh, yeah. Keep, keep an eye on your local comedy clubs and comedy festivals. I will be I mean, there honestly, soon. any Welsh viewers, call in. Love to hear from you. <laughs> Hopefully there is, like, at least a couple of Welsh listeners in here, although I'm very unclear on our demographics. I think it's a lot of Americans. But, yeah, thanks for another great episode, Steph. And uh, we'll see you all soon. See you soon. Bye. <laughs>